All of us are familiar with a, a, a Trojan horse. Uh, Greek mythology, uh, not, not his, you know, historians don't say it, it historically happened, but in these Greek poems and whatnot, we know the story of the Greeks trying to sack the city of Troy, unable to breach the walls, they build the horse as a gift, hollowed out on the inside, and you know they get in the city, and unbeknownst to those within Troy, within that horse were Greek soldiers who slip out under the cover of darkness, go and open the gates of the city, and here comes the Greek army to overrun Troy. Um, while historians, you know, they are wary of, 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 it's not a fact that this happened, uh, the lesson of the Trojan horse is inarguable, is it not, even in our day. Um, the idea that something can get within some place and from within bring about its destruction. You know, today as I was looking at that, just kind of refreshing my own mind, uh, this, the Trojan horse today is used most often in uh, the realm of IT, computer, uh, you know, computer science, et cetera, because a Trojan horse would be a, a virus uh, that gets within your computer, benign, this program comes onto your computer, and then once in, right, it just cuts loose and destroys all of your software and everything on your computer. It's also inarguable that uh, history tells us Nations, you all, kingdoms, uh, they, don't, they don't fall from the pressure without. They generally fall from troubles from within. That, that's an inarguable historic fact. Uh, the church is no different. So from, from the Trojan horse and that, that, that idea, I want us to think about the church. And, and I want to say that James has said, persecution is not going to be a problem, truly, quite frankly, for the church. It's not going to stop the church. Uh, you know, governments changing, regulations, laws changing, you know, restrictions on the church. That, that is not going to slow down the church. But there are two Trojan horses within the church that will trip her up. And these have been there from the very beginning and so James is actually going to point those two out to us this morning. Mike Vogt did a great job last week, if you were here. Mike took us from James 4, verse 1, all the way to verse 10. Uh, it's a passage on sin. Uh, it's this uh, Greek word, hamartia, which means uh, missing the mark, that's all sin is. When you say you've sinned, you've missed the mark of God's holiness. And it was an archer's, archery's term so that when an archer shot at the bullseye and he missed it, that distance was called sin from the mark. That's, that's what sin is. And as Mike walked us through this passage and we're still within that context, he said our problem is sin, God grieves our sin, and God gives a greater grace. And now we're gonna pick up you all the last two, the last two paragraphs of chapter four, if you're not there in your Bibles, I wanna invite you to get there. James four, it's verses 11 through 17. Uh, and in these two verses, and there's two parts to this text, I want you to think about these two Trojan horses that reside in Fellowship Bible Church and in every church, even as 
they were present here in this early church. I'm gonna give you two headings, okay, to do this. I'll read the passage, I'll give you the heading, and when we get to the next one, I'll do it as well. Let's start in verse 11. James says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? that you judge your neighbor. Now he's speaking to the church, brothers, sisters in Christ. This first Trojan horse, if you will, I'm just gonna give it the name slander. That's what he's talking about. And I would add this phrase and it's simply defining it, speaking against one another. He looks at the early church and it apparently, by the way, the tenses too on these, this was characteristics of these little small churches. Can you believe that? I mean, they're just getting going and they're already speaking against one another. Uh, before I, I talk about what he means in this passage, um, I wanna say what he's, what he's not saying because he uses this word to, to judge one another. Um, James doesn't mean that we should never correct one another. Uh, you will not find in, in the Bible a, a prohibition against going to another brother or sister and, and uh, in love, speaking the truth, correcting, if, if there's improper behavior, whatever that may be, there's sin in their life. That's, that's what we do to one another, even as a family does within the context of a family. But we often hear when we get to this word, you know, don't judge one another or judge, you know, judge one another. Uh, oftentimes we'll go to a verse and, and uh, you know what the verse will be? Generally, if someone says, man, you can't judge people, you can't, you know, you're not, the Bible says don't judge people. We'll go to Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, do not judge so you will not be judged. And that person will say to you or me, you know, they may say, you know, it's wrong to judge. You can't judge other people. Now, I want us to think about this biblically and it, and it addresses even why we teach the Bible the way we do. Oftentimes, when someone's kind of coming at you with a dogmatic, you know, the Bible says this, Bible says that, you, you want to step back and go, well, that verse in the Bible says that. But don't say the Bible says that. Because you can't take one verse and say, the Bible says this. You get it? It's why we teach the way we do. We gotta teach within a context. And even in that, in that particular verse, and, and, and I, I've heard this, people say this, you know, we're not to judge people because Jesus says, don't judge one another. But see, that would be to fail to take the context within which Jesus said what he said. And that would be to fail to take within the context of the whole Bible. That would be to fail to take into the context that James is making judgments right now about these Christians. When you look at that verse in Matthew 7, 1, you know, if you, if you looked at it in context, you would see Jesus continue to speak and say this, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. Oh yeah, don't judge someone. You judge someone, you know, you're gonna get, and then he goes on to say, don't judge if you have a log in your eye. In other words, be careful about the way you judge. 
It's not, can't ever say anything to someone about behavior that's wrong. And then take John 7, 24, because you got to take the whole Bible. What does Jesus say in John 7, 24? Those are, there are people judging him and he turns to them and says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Wait, I thought Jesus said, don't judge one another. Well, he did, but it was in the context of which he's saying, don't, don't make judgments against someone when you got a, a log in your eye and you're telling them something and you got this own issue in your life. And then he goes on in John and says, judge, you know, rightly. It's not what, so, so I want to be careful when we go through this passage here in James and he's speaking of judging a, a brother, don't judge a brother. It's not saying you can't call a brother or sister out in love to go to one another. So what is he saying? Well, here's what he's saying here. You don't say things to someone or about someone that are hurtful and harmful. Words that are diminishing. Think of this idea of diminishing to their heart or to the hearts of others. Uh, you don't do that. The, t- the, the, the verses we're looking at flow out of the context preceding it. And twice in the preceding context, note in verse six, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And then he goes into this idea of don't speak against one another. And you can put this picture in your mind. To speak against someone is to speak down about someone such that my words are putting them below me so I can lift myself. Rather than my words being humble that I might lift that person up. I'll get more specific on that in a moment. This word speak against, it's one, you know, two words in English, speak against. In Greek, it's kata, one word, and another word, laleo, kata, laleo, against, kata, laleo, to speak, to speak against someone, to speak that which is inappropriate. It's degrading, or it's, it's to speak ill of, um, It's to speak in such a way that your words, let's just cut to the quick, uh, they don't help. Now, they may help your pride, but they don't help. Three weeks ago, I made this statement out of James 3, 1 through 12. I'm quoting myself when I said, what James is saying is that to speak ill, inappropriately, wrongly about another human being is to speak ill, inappropriately, wrongly about God, end quote. Okay, okay. Well, then I come along and I'm teaching this passage this week. I've spent a, a, a week over a week in this passage and every time I read it, I kind of go, ooh. Oh, I remember what I said before and now I'm reading this about speaking against others and it's just the spirit at work in my life and I, I'm, I've got to tell you, uh, I'm just going, man, I have spoken against people. No question. And may I say to you, uh, it's not like I would say to you, you know, when I was in college, you know, I did stuff and I spoke, I'm not talking about college. I'm not talking about when I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, 30 years ago. I'm not talking about 20 years ago when we moved here to help plant this church. I'm talking about recent. Uh, let me say, I'm, I, I tell you as well, I'm not talking about that I have spoken against, you know, uh, I read an article about a, a, a brother in some city or what, what not, and I spoke against it. Let me, let me say, be even more specific. I've spoken against some of you recently. Wait, are you, you know, you're going, you're telling me you've said things about me that I didn't? Yeah, I have. I 
And then as I look at this, I go, I try to ration my way out of it, you know? Well, I'm, you know, I'm in a pastoral role and I need to say this about so-and-so and and someone because we need to help them, you know, and I need... And I, got no, and, I, and I find myself with no rationalization nor excuse. And, and, and some of you may say, well, wait, wait, you're a teaching pastor, you know? You're supposed to be loving us, not speaking against us. And, and I go, I know. <laughs> I know. I have a sin problem. That's what James says, and I agree with James. I do. I honestly don't think I'm alone. I think it's why James addresses this to the church. James, James is reminding us we've got a Trojan horse in the room. And it's when we, when we talk about one another, we say things. Two things we could categorize this. We could say gossip, which, you know... Yeah, it certainly includes, we sin with our words so often, but you know, gossip when we're saying something about someone to someone else. And I mean, it may or may not be true, but you know, it's, you know, it's that, I don't know, what do you call it? It's just that yummy sense of I know something about someone and I want you to know I know. We do that. Yes, I do that. It could be uh, slander, of course, when we lie about someone. I mean, we just flat out lie. We just say this about someone to someone that's, not true. What's most important in our text is this idea to speak against. I think what's one of the most important things is um, is that it 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 is it's irrelevant whether it's true or false. You know, oftentimes I think I do. We go well, well, you know, well, why'd you say that? Well, well, it's true. <laughs> Duh. And, and you step back from that. And, and so do we have a right to always say what's true? No, no. Yet we can, we can be under that guise. The question is, is what you and I say when we say something about another person in love? That's, that's the issue. Well, how do I know that's the issue? Well, in the context itself, I want you to note, it's what James means when he says this, the one who speaks against a brother speaks against and judges the law. The law in this context, let's think about this. He's not per se saying the law, the Ten Commandments. He's saying the law, which he has just mentioned in chapter two, verse eight, where he says, if however you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scriptures, well, what's the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And he says, if, you, if, you, if we don't, then we're not loving our neighbor well, okay? And God's the only one who, God's the only one who can give the law, love your neighbor. He's the only one who can then judge when someone is not doing that, for only God knows the heart. And he's the only one that can save or destroy, which are the consequences of our sin. So, so when we say, you know, I've often said this thing, well, I know what you were thinking. Well, I don't. Well, I knew what they meant by what they said. Well, I don't. It's just habit that I, I'm in. I know for myself that I think I know. And the truth is, James says, you can't know 
what's going on in someone else's heart. Only God can. So when you fail to love, you're basically saying, there's a better way than love with my words. Uh, the better way is I, I'll decide what's going on in someone's heart and so I'm gonna talk about that and I'm gonna say this about this person, etc. And he goes on to say it's sin. Helpful advice, it's been around a long time. You know, you can Google this one, you know, and it, and it, and it is helpful when, when someone has, has advised, who knows who originally said this, before you say something about someone or say something to someone, you ask yourself three questions. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Uh, that, that's really good advice. I don't think it goes far enough in the sense of, as I said earlier, in James's mind, whether something is true or not does not mean it needs to be said. So I don't think we could ask ourselves, is it true? Is it? That's helpful, do you know what I'm saying? But, but is it true is, is irrelevant. The question to ask before you open your mouth, before I open my mouth, and this is so difficult, is it not? Is it love? That's just it. Let's just stay with one question. You don't have to remember three. Is it love? Well, what do you mean, is it love? Well, what would love be? Love would, Jesus gave himself on the cross out of love. In other words, to deny yourself for the good of another. It's the commitment of your will for the benefit of the other person, not your own. That's love, you see. So, so if I'm gonna say something about someone, I, and I stop and I ask myself, is it love? I truly would say far less than I do. That's just a fact. Let's go on to the second threat within the church. Verse 13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, literally your pretension. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to, know, to, the one, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. Here, if, if the first Trojan horse within the body that harms the church is how we speak down to one another, the second would be how we speak about our plans. I'll give you one word here. If the first word slander, the second could be presumption. Presumption. To presume to be presumptuous. We, 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 we get the idea, we, we, we know where this is going. It's, it's defined in this way to undertake without clear justification. It's, it's, a, it's not a positive, you see. It's a, it, it's a negative. It's to take action or to say something uh, and you don't have the right to say what you've just said. You don't have, you don't have all the knowledge to say what you just said. There were, um, it's in, in, in this passage, I think it's interesting. He says in verse 13, come now. There's only one other time that that, that phrase is used in our Bibles. And, and it's in the next chapter, chapter what, five. Come now, you rich. And so he, he's, when, when he says that, it's a really good translation because the Greek idea is, come on. 
That's that's it. It's that sense of uh, upbraiding. It's that really, you guys. I mean, I mean, really now. That's what that's what he's saying. And isn't it interesting that when he's he's got so many sins he can address, and he comes down and he puts before them, you speak down to one another. And then almost out of left field, and he says, and you know what? You make plans without God. Yeah, two things that within the church can destroy it. There were businessmen, uh, women, you know, as, as in Proverbs 31, they were, uh, entrepreneurs, um, tradespeople. Within the church, you know, I've, I've, I've said that the early church largely living at, at a poverty level in many instances, but also many with wealth. He's gonna talk about the rich in a moment. So it's, it's, a, it's just a mixture of all socioeconomic stratas to say it's just like us. And he addresses those who, who, who can trade and make a living and make a profit. And he says, you know, you, got, you sit down and you make plans for tomorrow and you do this, you're gonna make a profit. And he goes, whoa, whoa, this is... This is serious that you do this. And, and this is the one too, you oftentimes you go, well, that's not that big a deal. Are you kidding me? He could have said anything about any sin any, and the spirit says, talk about this. This is what the early church needs and it's what you and I need today. Three things he says that they are doing, they are planning. And let me just get this out of the way. God is not against planning. Let me ask you a question. Is God a planner? Oh yeah. And we plan. Problem is when we plan apart from God, we, we plan without these. I'll give you three uh, principles or truths that he identifies here. When we plan without them, can you believe this? He says it's evil. It's not an oversight. He said that's evil. That's sin. Three things. The first is this. When we plan and we don't recognize that tomorrow is not guaranteed. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You know, the lunch you have planned when you leave here is not guaranteed. I'm not saying, it doesn't mean don't plan it. It just means recognize you may not get there. That, that's what he's saying. <clears throat> Much less tomorrow. Tomorrow, is, it's not guaranteed. We don't like to think about the reality of death, do we? And, and, yet, and yet death in many ways is, is uh, it's not out of God's control. And in fact, this is gonna sound so strange, but in the context of, of the Christian life and faith in God, that death is in fact gift. for the one who knows Christ and dies and in his presence and for those who do not know Christ and recognize life is short and my tomorrow's not guaranteed. Gift. The Bible does not in, 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 encourage us to get a morbid preoccupation with death. It just wants us to have a deep, deep conviction that life is gift and it is not guaranteed. Second thing, tomorrow's not guaranteed and secondly, life is short. Now, we spent 16 weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes that could be summarized in these three words. Life is short. You know, that was all of Ecclesiastes. It's a vapor, it's a smoke, it's a mist, it's here and it's gone. He's talking about physical life. 
okay? Physical life, because you know, we may argue, well, uh, you know, so I, I got a friend that lived to be 100. That's, that's awesome. But the point is, physical life, whether you live to be 100 or you live uh, 100 days or 100 hours, compared to life forever, it's short. It's minuscule. You could live a 1,000 years and it would be nothing compared to eternity where every one of us will be either with God or apart from God for our souls, who we truly are, lives forever. This life is, it's a, it's a vapor and it's gone. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Life is short. And then finally, in this one, you know, we, we, we see it every time we open our Bibles, it's this, God is in control, not you. Notice he said, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. It's not wrong to plan, but it's to plan recognizing you are not in control. God is in control. And if, I really mean this, if you make it to lunch today, it's because God willed it. Thank you, Lord, I made it to lunch today. If you wake up tomorrow and actually get up, get dressed and go about your day it's because God willed it. It's not because you're in shape, taking all your vaccines, and it's not because you're young. God has given you that. God willed it. He's not talking about a robotic existence, by the way. He's talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth and who sustains all things by the word of his power and who has given us you and I, choices that we make are real, real choices we make. And yet within all of that context, God is the one who controls life in all of his creation. You know about being in control? This struck me, and I guess maybe because of spring break. Uh, not that I got to go anywhere, though many of you did. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you think about control, because we, we don't, we think we're in control, and we can plan like we're in control, but I'll tell you what, you want to you wanna, you wanna realize you're not in control, travel. Do you know what I'm talking about? You ever seen people when they have a flight delayed? Oh my gosh. <laughs> or the flight canceled? You ever, I'm serious. I've seen myself be really stupid. Like, like, you know, you got this agenda, and I get it, it's, you know, you can get upset, but, but I've actually heard people say things like, you know, they're at that counter, you know, just giving it to that person, you know, there who's got nothing to do with this tornado that hit Texas, and now that plane, plane's not here. And the, or, or, or it's this one, when someone's, when they, when they go, you know, the, the, the plane's down because we have a maintenance issue, and the person says, I want on that plane. And, and you're going, <laughs> we got a maintenance issue, man. You really, you know, but, but you do because you're kind of going, I got more important things to do. And I'm telling you, when your plans get stopped, we, you suddenly realize I'm not in control. Well, multiply that by a billion. You're not in control. And God is, and therefore when we plan, we say, Lord, if it's your will. It's one of our core values at fellowship, spirit dependent. It's a recognition that we're a dependent people and unless 
the Lord wills it, we don't go anywhere. We don't do anything. We don't achieve. We don't accomplish. I said earlier, God's a planner. Do you understand God has a plan? And his plan's unstoppable. And his plan's eternal. And he invites you to be a part of that plan. And so whatever your plans are, if they're not in line with his plans, it's just kind of, you know, it really is. Because God invites us to join his plan, his will. That's what we were made for. That's life. Life is to walk in God's purposes and plans in his will. So that when we make our plans, and by the way, make them, you know, put stuff on your calendar that's totally appropriate. But do we do so understanding, you know, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Life is short. God's in control, I'm not. Lord, if it be your will. I want you to put your Bibles away, set your stuff to the side. This is one of those passages that, well, there, there it is. I mean, we could look at more, but I think we've looked at what this passage is saying and James is saying to us. By the way, I want you to note that when James talks about this praying, you know, if it be your will, it, it removes any sense of siloing your life. Because I think many people who walk with God and say they're Christians and walk with God will, will often treat it this way. Um, you know, I think, I'm thinking about going to Greece with Dan, a mission trip. Let's pray about that. Lord, if it's your will, you know, would you do this and that? And then you sit down with your financial planner and, and there's no God in that. And you're trying to decide where to go to school and there's no God in that. God, what's your will for this? And you're in a relationship and, and, and there's no God, what's your will in this do you know what I'm saying? And you're thinking about your family, but there's no God's will in your... There is no area of your life and mine that is not to be under God's will. Leisure, fun, whatever it is. Lord, if it's your will, I want to be in that. Well, I want you to set your Bibles down because we're gonna apply this in a pretty specific way this morning. And it's this. There's a principle in worship, and that is this, from beginning to the end of the Bible. Worship is revelation and then response. That's the core principle of worship. We don't don't worship just out of a vacuum. No, there's revelation. God has shown himself, and having shown himself, we respond. That's... It abides in all parts of life. We've just had revelation, you and I together, this word, and now how do we respond? And I think when we hear a passage like this, uh, an appropriate response, I believe for us, for me certainly, and I'm I'm just, I'm gonna, I think for us is repentance. What a gift, repentance. That when the Bible speaks to an area of our life and even an area of our church that we're missing God in, that now we know it's been revealed. We see, well, what do we do? We don't ignore it. We repent. We're going this way and to repent is to turn and go back to God. And so we go, gosh, you know, I have spoken against people. I confess that as sin and I turn to you and I thank you that you forgive me. And there may be some other things we may need to do in our repentance. To confess is, means to agree with. That's all confession means. Confession's not, hey, I said it out loud. Confession is, Lord, I agree with you that when I said that, oh, that was speaking a 
against someone. I agree with you that it's sin. I confess it and I turn to you and I thank you that you forgive me. Well, I'll do all that by the power of the Spirit. And so I'm gonna invite you, I'm gonna invite the band to come back out because we are gonna respond in a song at the end, but we're gonna do two things first. We're gonna repent personally. And so I wanna invite you right now. I'm gonna open us in a prayer. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads. And I'm going to invite you to do business with God just right, right where you are and invite the Spirit to show you where in your life have you spoken against? What place have you made your plans and you just neglected God and what he has to say? And I'm gonna invite you to repent. You can do that on your own privately. After that, I'm gonna lead us in a corporate confession which is good for the body, the body of Christ. Father, we come this morning having heard your word, a, a hard word that we maybe weren't anticipating this morning, but a good word to remind us of the power of our tongue, as James has so often said, that we use it to harm others. We truly do. And the ways we have, God, show us by your spirit this morning that we might repent confess our sin and know your forgiveness. And Lord, the ways in which we have planned, we've mapped out our life. I mean, we've mapped out our summer already and that's a, that's a good thing, but did we do it, Lord, in dependence? Did we do it in recognition that tomorrow's not guaranteed? Life is short and you're in control. Show us, show us individually, I pray how to respond. the Spirit impresses upon you a person, a name, then name the name. And you don't always have to go to that person necessarily, but maybe, maybe one or maybe you do. I don't know, but trust the Spirit's leading. Maybe it's a note or a letter. I, whatever he says. Recall there's a coin in your pocket that says faith and works are inseparable. great work of faith this morning is to repent.
wanna invite you to stand. Let's stand together corporately. I'm gonna read a corporate confession out of our text. I'll lead it so you'll see leader, I speak. And then Carl will lead congregation, which is when you speak. Out loud, we read these words. The very last slide says all, and of course, I will, we'll all read it together. So respond with your congregational part to this reading. I'll begin. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Most gracious, merciful Father, we have sinned. Humility has given way to pride. We've chosen our own way rather than yours. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. Most gracious, merciful Father, we have sinned. We have spoken against brother and sister. We have used our words to lift ourselves and lower others. We have judged your law by believing there is a better way than love. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Most gracious, merciful Father, we have sinned. We have made our plans without you. Plans for our careers, relationships, finances, and leisure. Plans for our days, our weeks, and our years. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Most gracious, merciful Father, we sin, presuming that our tomorrows are guaranteed and that long life is our right. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. Most gracious, merciful Father, we acknowledge our dependence. Unless you will it, we plan in vain. Unless you will it, we labor in vain. Unless you will it, we reap in vain. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Most gracious, merciful Father, we need to change our hearts to give us eyes to see the one who humbled himself completely, who spoke only those words that gave life, who did only what he saw you doing. Most, Most gracious, gracious, merciful Father, Thank you for changing our hearts. In Jesus, we can humble ourselves, refusing our own way. In Jesus, we can speak words that love. In Jesus, we can plan this life in light of the life to come.